Welcome to Seeking Scripture Deep Diving Bible Study. I'm Christy Jordan, and I want to help you develop a firsthand relationship with the whole Word of God. For links and graphics mentioned in my podcast, please visit the corresponding post on SeekingScripture.com. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. Good morning, siblings. Today's readings are Acts chapter 18 through 20. Rabbit Trails. Acts 18, 2. This chapter has a lot of statements that just leave you hanging. Invariably, these tend to tell a much deeper story and invite the reader, should they choose, to dig deeper in order to reveal their treasures. Now, Acts 18.2 is one of those statements that tells us Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. If you think there's more to this than you'd imagine, you'd be right. Rather than recap it all here, it's a deep well, I'm going to direct you to Eliot's commentary on Bible Hub. Start at the fourth paragraph down that begins with bold letters, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. I'm linking to it here in my notes. Talk about interwoven history. Acts 18.4 tells us that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath that he was there, which I take to mean that he taught and discussed scriptures. We're told these discussions were taking place with both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles in other words. What a heart he had. In Acts 18.11, we learn that the time he was there encompassed a period of one year and six months. When we arrive at Acts 18.6, we see Paul being fiercely rejected by some. But at the same time, we're told that the leader of the synagogue was a believer and had led his entire household to be likewise. In the past few days, we've repeatedly seen how the Father will use a few people of great influence to encourage and embolden others. I just want to take a moment to let you know that for someone you could be that person of great influence. And you may never know it. Acts 18.18, Paul's vow. We are given a simple statement here. At Sincrae, I'm not pronouncing that right, (laughs) he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And then the narrative moves on. Now, as you surely suspect, this single sentence, which may seem out of place, is telling us a deeper story than we realize. Nothing else is said about this vow at this point, but we will discuss it further once we get to Acts 21. So just put it in your back pocket for now. I want to point out something that Amy Castor noticed in our reading of Acts 18, which is something I had not known before, but it is very important. Now, in at least the following translations, but most likely more, a sentence has been removed. NIV, NLT, ESV, BSB, BLB, NASB, CJB, the list goes on and on, but y'all get the point, okay? However, it still appears in the AKJV, KJ2000, AB, KJ, and NKJ, and the Scriptures translation. Now, that sentence is found in Acts 18.21 in some translations, and it reads, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. You can see how most of the popular translations deal with it by clicking here to visit the link for this specific verse at BibleHub.com. 
You can also click the link below to see that BibleHub.com um, does have it included in the Greek manuscript, and I've read that some Syriac versions include it as well. However, I also came across one footnote that stated some Greek manuscripts may not have included it. So, why was this removed? Well, there's a lot of commentary on this if you'd like to dig around and find it, but I'm afraid that at the end of the day, we can only speculate. Now, generally, when things are added to and taken away from the Bible, it is to support a doctrine. And you might want to check out Deuteronomy 4 too about that. Or because early manuscripts were found not to have that verse. However, in this case, it appears that some early manuscripts do include this statement, but some do not. So this one could be a mixed bag of possibilities. But this is why we are to be Bereans. When we diligently search the scriptures and read them daily, things like this stand out to us. And when we miss them, iron sharpens iron, as in this case. Thank you, Amy. This is just some food for thought today. Now, if we consider that the aforementioned statement does appear in some early manuscripts, we might find ourselves justifiably asking which feast it was that Paul was so adamant about keeping. We can't know for sure because this text doesn't tell us, but in Acts chapter 20, we will see Paul keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread and consequently Passover, as well as Shavuot, which is also known as Pentecost. We will find these gaps in knowledge in terms of details we'd like to know but aren't told. We'll find them more often moving forward, and they will be most apparent to us in Paul's letters in that he is writing replies, but we aren't given the benefit of the content of the letters he was actually replying to. Someday, we will be able to fill in all these gaps and know the answer to all the questions we can't know the answers to now. For now, we have the comfort and joy of being able to seek the Father through exploring the knowledge He has put before us in this wondrous book. And that is enough to keep me busy for sure. I just want to point out that repeatedly in our texts and translations, we will see the Jews set up as the unilateral bad guy. But if we continue to pay attention to the text, we will see that both Jews and Gentiles were sitting under Paul's teaching, believing and joining in his ministry. At one point, we'll even be told that thousands of Jews heard the message and believed. Again, I point this out just to help us flesh out that the whole Jews versus Christians mentality has poisoned the body against the will of Yahweh for far too long. Acts 19 verses 13 through 16 is a lesson for us all. Notice in this exchange that the evil spirits or demons, they knew who their enemies were. They knew the Messiah, and they even knew of Paul, but they didn't know these seven sons of the high priest. Now, the adversary doesn't bother to know those who come to him willingly. But if you're a force for the Father, you better believe your name's on the attack list, and they know full well who you are. Expect attack. In fact, if you're, seeing, if you're seeking to know the Father and His Word, it's safe to assume that you're under attack right now. Which brings me to a word of caution. In these trying times, modern-day prophets and dreamers of dreams are rising up and developing a following fast. We must realize that the adversary knows how to deceive good men as well as bad. A reminder for the wise, you don't need them, and it's best to not seek them out. Spend that time instead seeking Him in His Word. Yahweh is enough. All too often we see folks dipping their toes in the Bible while spending the bulk of their time following spiritual leaders instead. We must remind ourselves daily 
that there's no such thing as a secondhand relationship with the Father, and there's no such thing as a secondhand relationship with the Word. Don't let the desire for a quick fix pull you away from a thorough and daily study of the Word. Yahweh is enough. Say it with me. He is enough. Acts 19, verses 21 through 41. When we read of the riot of Ephesus, there is one big takeaway that jumped out at me. Now, this is a lesson from human nature versus the living flesh in 101. Um, And if the word of Yahweh discredits or drives a wedge between what some hold dear and even hold as gods, then those people will seek to discredit the word of Yahweh and those who bring his word to them. Now, you're going to need to digest that for a bit for it to fully absorb. A big lesson from Acts 20. Okay, take a deep breath because we're about to dive deep. Two things are very important in being able to understand what we're reading here. Context and knowledge of the biblical feast. I know some of y'all are really tired about me talking about the feast, but hang in there because first and foremost, they are important to our Father. And secondly, they are important in understanding Scripture as is the case with Acts 20, verses 6 through 16. I won't even get into their importance in the return of our Messiah, but I strongly recommend you look into that when time permits. Let's start with Acts 20, verse 7, because there's a translation error here, which we're going to iron out. In most Bibles, this verse begins with something akin to, on the first day of the week. However, if you look at the Greek words being translated, you'll see that they are miaton sabaton. So, what does miaton sabaton mean? Well, if we were to accurately translate that, it would translate to one of the Sabbaths. But I want to show you how to find that for yourself. So, first, let's look at Acts 27 in a listing of several other translations. I have the link here in my notes. Note how many say first day of the week and how many variances there are. How do we know which one is right? Well, if you look up at the top of that screen and click interlinear, you will see this. And I have another link to this in my notes as well. Here we see miaton sabaton. However, the translation over the words still hold up the first day of the week translation. But let's check out each word individually to see their meaning. Now, if you click the number above mia, it's Strong's Greek 1520. And I've got a link here for you to do that. And we see that it means one not first. Now go back to the Greek and you'll see in the English it says of the week under Sabaton. But if we click on Sabaton, we will see that it means Sabbath, the seventh day. One of the Sabbaths. Now most translations are telling us that this means first day of the week, but in Greek, Mia means one. Protos means first. So, miaton sabaton is a Greek phrase that does not even contain the word day. Miaton sabaton, one of the Sabbaths. Crazy, isn't it? Now, why would a Sabbath be denoted as one of the Sabbaths? Context is where all this makes sense. So, in Acts 26, the verse right before we're told they gathered on one of the Sabbaths, we're told that they had just finished keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in Leviticus 23, it's a chapter that details Yahweh's feast. And in Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 16, we read about the Feast of Weeks. It reads, 
You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So this counting of the seven full weeks begins right at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They count off Sabbaths, which leads up to the Feast of Weeks. Note that it's seven full weeks, but we're also told that they're to count 50 days. This counting of 50 days is how the Feast of Weeks got its Greek name, which is Pentecost. Pentecost in Greek means 50th. Now, read Acts 20.16 for the big light bulb moment. It reads, For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. These were special Sabbaths which they were counting as part of keeping the feast. The phrase, one of the Sabbaths, lets us know that. The text tells us where they are in terms of the feast season, and this phrase is confirming that these these events were, in fact, taking place in a specific time period in between two feasts. Now, it also shows us that they were actively living in obedience by keeping these feasts according to Yahweh's instructions. So why did they translate it this way? Well, it's possible it was out of ignorance. I don't mean that as demeaning or insulting, but as the original definition, they just didn't know. Most of these texts were translated by folks in a faith descended from those in agreement with the Council of Laodicea, who had made it illegal for Christians to keep the, quote, Jewish feast, and to even rest on the, quote, Jewish Sabbath. So this knowledge which should have been ingrained in all followers of Yahweh so that we recognize this immediately in the text, was just as lost as them as it was on us. And they assumed Mia Ton Sabbaton had to be just another way of denoting a Sabbath, with some translations going so far as to translate Sabbaton to Sunday. I do think that was a little bit less innocent, though. Now, if this translation error wasn't out of ignorance, what would be the other motivation? You know that by now, so I'll just leave it to you to consider. So we have to ask ourselves, how much more have we missed because we weren't raised with the knowledge the Father meant for us to be raised with? Each time we read through the Word, you'll find more and more nuggets of wisdom. You'll find that the Father gives us knowledge in layers, with each layer building atop the other. Knowledge of the feast serves as a lens that allows countless passages to come into focus. However, don't beat yourself up because you didn't know, and don't feel overwhelmed because there's so much we still need to learn. Instead, be excited that you know what you know now, and be encouraged that we're here together, being led by the Father. We found the source. We've come such a long way, and yet, The journey's only beginning. He is so good to us. Acts 20, verses 26 through 33. Now, this passage contains a bold statement from Paul, which I need to confess to you, I cannot say for myself. Let me read it to you. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, while I can honestly say I have not coveted anyone's wealth, and thereby that has not motivated me to soften the gospel, I need to confess to you that I have shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, when I first started reading the word for myself, I was surprised, sometimes angry, and often even hurt to find that so much of what I'd been told the Bible said didn't line up with what it actually said. At the time, I had already been led to start an online Bible study, and I put that on hold while I worked through these issues with the Father. I kept saying, Father, I can't tell them this. They won't hear this coming from me. But I kept reading. As the Father's words continued to be clear and repetitive time and again, I'd bring him that same plea. Father, I can't tell them this. They won't hear this coming from me. I was twisted and torn. The Bible made so much sense for the first time in my life, but that was because I had learned to let it be the straight edge, and I freely cast aside all that didn't line up with it. But that pile of things I had cast aside grew and grew, and all the while the Father was impressing on me relentlessly that I was supposed to start this Bible study group. Finally, after months of pushing back, he began to increasingly frustrate me. I went outside to spend some time in prayer one day, intent on begging him to let this one drop, because in my mind there was no way people would listen to me share his truths on such a large scale when they contradicted man's doctrine in so many key areas. And so I issued my plea yet again. Father, I can't tell them this. They won't hear this coming from me. And this time, I heard a voice in my mind, clear as day, and nothing at all like my own respond. You get them in my word, and you let me tell them. And that is when I knew my purpose. There have been countless evenings when I ran my notes by my husband, my friends, Donna, Debbie, and Wayne, and others, because I wanted them to make sure that they were okay and not too offensive. Now, I've never sought to offend, but the word of our Father is convicting, and when we feel it as our toes being stepped on, it hurts. And when I had to share something in the word, which we know will step on the toes of others, I hesitate. Because I know that pain, and I know that it presents a crossroads, a point of decision. It is my sincere prayer that my work will bring people closer to Him rather than drive them away. And each time, first and foremost, before I write my notes, as I'm writing my notes and before I share them with anyone, I pray, I beg, plead, and beseech the Father to tell me what I should remove. 
And when I come to these tricky passages where the Father's instructions are so glaringly clear, but I know they intersect or even split in two beloved doctrine, I ask Him to take this cup from me. What a weak person I am. There have been times when I have actually asked the Father not to make me share His Word because I knew that it will offend people. Because I don't want my words to be the ones that send you running away. I want them to send you running to Him. But sometimes people, including myself, just aren't ready. We rely on the Father to prepare that soil. And all we can do is water it. And so, many nights as I finish up my notes, I'm inwardly crying out to Him and asking for just one more assurance that they're okay to post. We've had this particular conversation each night since starting the Bible study here, and yet he always responds in kind. He asks, is it true according to my word? And are you saying this because you love them? If I answer yes to both of those, I know what I've been called to do, and as a result, what I have to do. I saw a great quote on social media that said, One of the problems with modern believers is that we've replaced this convicts me with this offends me. With that quote in mind, I want to end on this note. If something in the Bible offends us, we need to take it up with the author. But if you're not quite ready to do that, I'm happy to take the blame. As long as you promise me that you'll keep reading. Test everything. Hold tight to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 We are saved by grace alone. Obedience is not the root of our salvation, but it is the fruit. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. I love y'all. Bye-bye.